0: Well, amen. Well, with that song echoing in our minds and our hearts, let's take our Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John and continue our look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at uh, John chapter 20 here the last few weeks. And we want to continue on in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. And let me read this text. A familiar text, I'm sure, to most, uh, but hopefully we'll see it in a fresh light this morning. John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, "'Peace be with you.' And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord." So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, the disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious book that we hold uh, before us. We, we know it's your very words and that it's inspired by you and it has authority over our lives. It has the power to change us, to make us who you want us to be. And so I pray that we'd all experience the life-changing power of your word this morning. Lord, as we sit under the teaching of this text, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate us to understand uh, what John uh, meant here by what he recorded and the context in which he recorded it. And Lord, that we would leave here uh, more uh, in love with Christ as a result of our time. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm sure that this story of Thomas, or doubting Thomas, as he's often referred to, is very familiar uh, to most of us, but I'm not sure that all of us have ever considered the story of doubting Thomas uh, in the context in which it comes in the Gospel of John. It serves as a very It serves a very significant role in John's gospel. Why do I say that? Because it's the final illustration that John used to drive home his main point of this entire gospel, which was to convince people that Jesus is God's Son who died and rose again to give eternal life to all who repent of their sin and place their faith in Him. And this was the climactic example or illustration that John chose before he wrapped up uh, the theme of his book in verses 30 and 31. Now I think it is important to make this statement at the very beginning that Thomas wasn't the only person who found it hard to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there have been skeptics who who consider the concept of a dead man coming back to life as absurd, as absolute nonsense. In fact, we've mentioned the last couple of weeks, the disciples themselves, Jesus' own disciples considered it nonsense that Jesus rose from the dead. I think the primary contention of most atheists or agnostics or skeptics of the Christian faith is a lack of visible proof of tangible evidence. They like to argue that if you, if they could just see it, if they could touch it or experience it, then they would believe. But until they do, they refuse to believe. They live their lives according to the popular misconception that seeing is what? Believing. We're familiar with that 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 expression in in our society, seeing is believing. However, according to the Bible, that's just not true. Seeing doesn't necessarily result in believing. There's lots of people in the Bible who saw amazing things and yet still refuse to believe. For example, in the Old Testament, Pharaoh witnessed the greatest series of signs and wonders ever granted to one man. He saw the ten plagues of Egypt. And yet he still hardened his heart against God. In the New Testament, the Pharisees watched Jesus perform many miracles, but they still refused to believe that he was God. Both Pharaoh and the Pharisees kept wanting what? More proof. Do another one. I want to see another plague, then I'll believe. Do another sign, do another miracle, and then we'll believe. John recorded in John 4, 48, unless you people, Jesus said this, unless you, see, you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 38, Jesus said some of the scribes and uh, Pharisees, or, or Matthew records this uh, interaction between the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus, he says some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Just one of their many requests for a sign, and just, just, just do something so that we'll believe. And he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. See, what's the sign of Jonah the prophet? He goes on, he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, the one miracle that should have been all the evidence that anyone would ever need to believe that Jesus was God's son sent from heaven to save us from sin is the resurrection. That was the ultimate miracle, the ultimate evidence, the ultimate proof. And yet even after Jesus rose from the dead, the majority of the people were unpersuaded and they remained in their unbelief. And what unbelievers, I think, fail to realize is the main problem that they have is not a lack of proof, it's a lack of faith. Big difference between a lack of proof and a lack of faith. They they don't have the faith to believe what they cannot see, and so they spurn the Bible's call to walk by what? Faith and not by sight. That's what the Bible says. We have to live that way. The Bible defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things what? Not seen. The Bible goes on to say that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. That goes against our normal reasoning. It's, it's natural to assume that you must understand something before you can believe something. But the Bible says it's the exact opposite. You must believe something in order to understand it. In other words, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And I think that's the moral of the story of doubting Thomas. And we, you may wonder, well, how did Thomas acquire this notorious nickname? Well, it was because of his stubborn refusal to accept the testimony of his fellow apostles regarding uh, the Lord's resurrection. Now, all the disciples, mind you, had a hard time believing that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. They didn't fully accept the fact until they saw him with their own eyes, but no one was more skeptical than Thomas. And yet, when all was said and done, no other disciple made a clearer, bolder declaration about the nature of Jesus Christ than Thomas. And we're in debt. To the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, to the Apostle John here for providing us with the only description of Thomas in the four Gospels. Everything we know about Thomas, other than his name, we learn from the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke simply include his name in the list of the 12 men that Jesus chose to be disciples, but John included several incidences. Involving Thomas, they give us some insight into the kind of man that he was. And so before we dive into this text in John 20, let's just go back and look at the other two times that Thomas is mentioned by John. John 11. John 11, uh, verses 1 through 16. This is uh, the account of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. John chapter 11 verse 1 now a certain man was sick Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick so the sisters sent words to him saying Lord behold he whom you love is sick but when Jesus heard this he said this sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God so that the son of man be glorified now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so when he heard that they that he was sick uh, he, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was, and after this he said to the disciples, let us go to, to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And here it is. Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. And so here we have this story of Lazarus who lived in Bethany, which was on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and the disciples couldn't understand why Jesus would, would want to go back to Jerusalem or anywhere close to Jerusalem, since so the last time he was there, the religious leaders had tried to stone him, and when it became apparent that, that, that to all of them that they were, uh, they, there was no talking Jesus out of this, he was, he was going to go see Lazarus no matter what. Thomas speaks up here in verse 16, and basically he says, okay guys, if we can't beat him, we might as well join him. If he's going to go get himself killed, we might as well get killed too. And so he was convinced, Thomas was convinced, that Jesus was heading straight for a stoning, and yet he was grimly determined to go die with him. He was being heroic, I'll give him that, but I think he was also being pessimistic at the same time. And there's a reason why Thomas has been called by some the pessimist of the uh, the apostolic band. One commentator writes this, It's probably uh, fair to say that Thomas was somewhat uh, a negative person. He was a worrywart. He was a brooder. He tended to be anxious and angst-ridden. He was like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. He anticipated the worst all the time. Pessimism, rather than doubt, seems to have been his besetting sin. Another commentator makes this No, Thomas was indeed a doubter. He was not lacking in courage, loyalty, or devotion to Jesus, but he did have a gloomy disposition. He looked on the darker side of things. And so we see this negative characteristic every time we come across Thomas in John's Gospel. At the same time, however, we also see a man who is loyally and courageously dedicated to Jesus Christ. It's true he doubted, but he was devoted. He was willing to follow Jesus even if it meant he would have to die. In fact, I think he would have rather died with Jesus than be left behind and separated from Christ. We see that in John chapter 14. Turn over there for a second. John chapter 14, here Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going away. And uh, he's comforting them. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And that where I am there, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Well, here's Thomas. Verse 5 said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me if you had known me you would have known my father also from now on you know him and have seen him again here's thomas expressing a, a pessimistic perspective he says hey you're going how are we going to find you where are you going And so you get the sense here that that Thomas never wanted to be apart from Christ. And again, his his deep devotion to Christ, I think, comes out here in John 14. He would have been glad to die with Christ uh, because he couldn't think of living without him. And so the next time we see Thomas, here in John chapter 20, his worst fear had become a reality. Jesus had died and he hadn't. He had been separated from his beloved Lord and Savior and was left alone to live the rest of his life without him, or so he thought. At this point, I think Thomas was sure that he would never see Jesus ever again. And so we come here to verse 24 of John chapter 20, but Thomas, one of the 12 Called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. The way I'd like us to think about this text, and, and really want to put it all under the, 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 um, the topic of unbelief and belief here, and contrast these things here, because I believe that's what John was doing in this text. And so what we're going to see in verses 24 and 25 here is what we could call the barrenness of unbelief, the barrenness of unbelief. And then what we're going to see in verses, really, 19 uh, through 23 and also 26 through 31, we're going to see the blessedness of belief, the blessedness of belief. And so let's start off with looking at the barrenness of unbelief, the barrenness of unbelief. Notice verse 24, it says, but... Thomas, one of the twelve, called Jesus, was not with them when Jesus came. So that brings us back to what is what is John told us in verses 19 to 23. Well, here are the disciples, we we find them hunkered down behind locked doors, fearing for their lives. You say, why were they so afraid? Well, they had good reason to be scared. Not only of the Romans, but particularly the Jews, uh, their Jewish leaders. Uh, Their leader, Jesus, had already been arrested and and crucified. Um, Anyone who had followed Christ was at risk of being excommunicated. The the, the Pharisees and the scribes had already threatened that. Um, Jesus himself had taught them to expect to suffer like he had suffered. And the story was already being circulated by the tomb guards that his disciples had stolen Christ's body to make it look like he rose from the dead. And so here they were huddling in fear in the upper room, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus has appeared to comfort and encourage them. It says in verse 19, and so when it was evening on that day, again, the first day of the week, Sunday, when the doors were shut, that's important comment, he, he, he makes that same statement again uh, later on to emphasize the fact that Jesus was walking through walls at this point. He was just appearing. He didn't have to walk through a door. Uh, He had a glorified body. And so it says, He came and He stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you, which was a customary greeting uh, for for Hebrews and and, and Jews. Uh, Shalom, like the shalom of the Old Testament. Uh, This appearance here in verse 19 uh, was the last of five appearances that Jesus made on the first Sunday, the first Easter, we, we looked last week at uh, Mary Magdalene's, appear, uh, uh, First, she was the first one to see Jesus alive, uh, then he appeared to some other women, uh, we also know he appeared to two disciples on the Emmaus Road, he appeared to Peter at some point here, and then now to these disciples, or you might say the ten apostles in the upper room, and as proof that it was really him what did Jesus do? He said he showed them his hands and his side. Uh, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. In other words, he reached out his hands and he showed them the scars that were left by the nails. He pulled back his robe, revealing the scar uh, from the spear that the soldier had, had, had thrust in his side. And, and according to Luke, why this is so important, at first the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost until Jesus told them to touch him. Luke chapter 24 Verse 36 While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. You can imagine, put yourself in that situation. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Listen, ghosts don't eat. That was his point. You still, if you're still not sure, you're touching me, but you're still kind of more than your mind can comprehend. Hey, you got anything around here to eat? Watch this. And he, and he ate. And it's not like you could see it going down his throat and into his stomach like a ghost, right? It was like he was a real, real human body there. And so Jesus wanted to make sure that they didn't think he was just some figment of their imagination, that, that they weren't just hallucinating And so he made himself real to them, and and, and you can see here uh, in John chapter 20, verse... the end of verse 20, he says the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So this, you can imagine the upper room, what it felt like, this somber, funeral-like atmosphere where, where they're all grieving and they're confused and they're just overwhelmed with, with, with grief and sorrow. And then all of a sudden it just switches to this locker room-like atmosphere where this is a bunch of elated guys uh, jumping for joy like some underdogs who couldn't believe they just won the championship. I mean, what a moment that must have been. And then notice what Jesus says to them, verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. By the way, that should remind us of what he already said, or that should have reminded him what he already said in the high priestly prayer. He prayed this in John 17, 18, As you sent me into the world, he's praying to his Father, I also have sent them into the world the world and so in the same way that that Jesus had already commissioned Mary to tell them that he was alive now he was commissioning them to tell the whole world that he was alive and then this might come as a confusing statement here in verse 22 when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit after he commissioned them he he empowered them with the Holy Spirit to fulfill their task. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. I thought that the Holy Spirit didn't come until Pentecost. Right, we know that. Acts chapter 2, very clearly, was when they received the promised Holy Spirit um, and, uh, and, and they were baptized by the Holy Spirit and, and the church was inaugurated. Uh, what was this? What was going on here? Well, I think this was just an initial, initial enabling by the Spirit to sustain them for the next 40 days. While they were waiting for Pentecost, there was a lot going to go on in those 40 days, in that month and a few weeks there, and and so they needed the Holy Spirit. And so in some ways, this was simply a preview of Pentecost. This wasn't the the, the mother load, if you will, okay? Uh, That was coming uh, on the day of Pentecost. And so That's a confusing statement at first, but then also, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This is all part of the Great Commission, if you will, according to John, right? He's sending them out in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, listen, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins will be forgiven, and if you don't forgive the sins of any, their sins won't be forgiven. You say, well, what's going on there? Well... As those commissioned to share the good news of salvation in the power of the Spirit, Jesus gave the disciples the authority to proclaim forgiveness, not provide forgiveness. That's an important distinction here. No man or select group of men have the authority or the ability to forgive people's sins. Only God has the authority and the ability to forgive sins. They don't think you can come to me or some other holy guy, right, a priest or anyone else, and, and they say your sins have been forgiven. As if they're forgiving your sin. No, we don't have the authority to forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. I think the best commentary on John chapter 20, verse 23, is, is Acts 10:43, where Peter, who was here listening to what Jesus said, and he explained to the Gentiles how he understood what Jesus meant. When he said, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven, and if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. In Acts 10.43, when he was sharing the gospel with Cornelius, the first Gentile convert in the book of Acts, he said this, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And so I think Jesus was simply saying here that his followers can declare with confidence that's you, that's me. We can declare with confidence that God has forgiven the sins of all those who repent of their sins and receive by faith the forgiveness that he provides through the finished work of his son on the cross. We can declare that. If somebody comes to us and we share the gospel with them and they repent of their sin and they receive Jesus Christ, we can declare that guess what? Your sins have been forgiven. We're just simply declaring it. Tonight, We will declare that over 12 individuals who are getting baptized, that because based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you've turned from your sin, you've trusted Him, your sins have been forgiven, and therefore we're baptizing you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're you're not getting your sins forgiven right now. You already had your sins forgiven. This is just an illustration, a picture of the cleansing that took place of sin from sin when you got saved. At the same time, we as Christ's followers can declare with confidence that those who refuse to repent and believe in Jesus, they will not have their sins forgiven, but will pay the consequences for them in hell. We can declare that. We can proclaim that. John has already said in John 3.36, he who has the Son has life. He who believes in the Son has life, but he who is not Obey the Son, shall not have life, but the wrath of God abides on them. That is the bleak outlook for the unbelievers in the world. And I think John illustrated this bleak outlook of those who don't believe through the example of Thomas. And from what John has told us already about Thomas, uh, he was the one who needed this encouragement that Jesus provided the disciples in the upper room more than any of them. But he wasn't there. It says that, but Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. You say, well, where was he? Well, we don't know for sure. But everyone else had showed up back at the ranch, if you will, back to the upper room. But where was Thomas? Well, again, based on what we already have learned about his personality, we could speculate that he had been off wallowing in self-pity somewhere. That his whole world had just come crashing down around him. He was living his worst nightmare. Jesus had died and he didn't know where he went or, or how to get to where he was. And it's likely that he was so devastated, so broken hearted, so crushed that he was in no mood to socialize. He just didn't want to be around anybody. He just wanted to be by himself. That's how some of us deal with our emotions, don't we? We just want to be alone. James Montgomery Boyce comments, he said, There are Christians who have a naturally gloomy temperament. These tend to go off by themselves, yet these are the ones who can least afford to be alone. Gloom and despair, prey upon them, and such people will become more gloomy and less believing if left alone. Go to them, find them, bring them back into that fellowship you enjoy. That's exactly what the other disciples did for Thomas. Thomas. Verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, Thomas. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, I don't want to just see it, I want to touch it, and I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now these disciples are a good example for us because they could have said to one another, you know what? Too bad Thomas wasn't here. He sure missed out. You snooze, you lose. It's his own fault. Mr. Eeyore out under the tree, you know, crying by himself. And when they found him, they could have confronted him or scolded him. But instead, what did they do? They went after him with great enthusiasm, with great compassion. It's like they couldn't wait to tell him what he what had missed out on. And they, they, they may have said something like, Thomas, you, you are not going to believe what happened. We were hiding out in the upper room and this past Sunday night, and all of a sudden, Jesus walked right through the door, right, walked through the wall. He stood there right in front of us. And we know it was really him, because he showed us the nail prints in his hands and the, and the scar in his side. He, he let us touch him. He even had a piece of fish. Crazy. Dude, Jesus is alive. We've seen him with our own eyes. We've felt him with our own hands. And the tense here in the Greek, in the original language, indicates that the other disciples didn't just tell Thomas once. They kept trying to convince him that it was true. But initially, for Thomas, it was too good to be true. And no amount of convincing was going to change his mind. And in in spite of these repeated assurances of his colleagues that Jesus had risen, Thomas was obstinate. He's like, listen, unless I see the scars in his hands and the side with my own two eyes, and I put my own finger in them, I'm not buying it. In other words, I'll believe it when I see it or touch it. He wanted visible, tangible proof of the Lord's resurrection. And he wasn't about to just take anybody's word for it. Now, again, before we're too hard on on Thomas, okay, let's keep in mind that that he was simply asking to be given the same privilege that the other disciples had been given. It wasn't wasn't until they actually saw Jesus and and touched him that they believed that he was really alive, that they were slow to believe as well. They were all doubters, if you will. They were the doubting disciples. Don't just put Thomas in that category. They were all doubting disciples. And I think that's why they knew that, and that's why they made sure that he was with them when they gathered together a week later for worship on that following Sunday. Verse 26, after eight days, disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Again, I think we can learn an important lesson here from the interaction between Thomas and the other disciples. And really, it's, it's this barrenness of unbelief and how to remedy it. Thomas, on one hand, I think is like every unbeliever who is skeptical about, skeptical about Christianity. Whether they admit it or not, there's, there's, there's a feeling of loneliness and emptiness in their hearts. Their life is meaningless. That may describe your life this morning. And what you need to realize is your barren life can be filled with purpose and with hope. If you repent of your sinful rebellion against God and place your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I think on the other hand, Thomas is also like every believer who drifts away from the church. It's lonely, it's empty out there. And like, I think Thomas, too many Christians, they face weeks of fear and grief when they could be experiencing joy and peace all because they missed church. And I think whenever we're tempted to, to not come to church, we need to remember Thomas. I mean, he I, I bet you he was sad that he missed church the, the first Sunday, right, when the church met. The first day of the week. He, he missed out on something huge. And that's the thing. You never know what special blessing you might miss that, that could make all the difference in your life. There's times when just, I'll sense, man, God was in something, you know, that was happening on a Sunday morning or, or at a retreat or at a camp or at a baptism service. And, and I'm like, man, if people that didn't come, they just completely missed out on a work of God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you be, be none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and so the scripture says hey make sure you encourage one another why because we all need to be encouraged why because we have a tendency to allow our hearts to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin The writer of Hebrews goes on in Hebrews 10, Let us consider, therefore, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of sun, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The point is, don't not come to church. Don't not come to church. I ask this question every new members class, the first Week of members, new members class, life at Lakeside. I say, hey, is it a sin not to go to church? Is it a sin not to go to church? That's just kind of gets everybody's attention. "Um, This is the pastor. What what am I supposed to say? He's gonna, right? He wants me to know that. He wants. He wants to make sure I know it's a sin if I don't show up at church every Sunday. And he wants me to be a member of his church. And no, I'm just asking the question: Is it a sin not to go to church? And the question really is intended: Is it a sin? Not to miss church on Sunday, that's what we're talking about, but on a regular basis. If you're a believer, if you're a professing Christian, is it a sin to not be regularly involved in a local church? Answer is yes, because Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, don't forsake your own assembling together as a habit of some is. There are some, apparently, people that was, the writer of Hebrews was writing to here that, that were not going to church. They weren't coming together with the body of believers. And he's saying, hey, quit it. Stop it. You need to be considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, again, if you get sick and you miss church next Sunday, or maybe, uh, God forbid, you might be out hunting One weekend, because, you know, that that are you sinning because you were hunting and not at church? I don't think so. The point is, it's a regular pattern of your life we're talking about here, that you understand the importance of staying plugged in to a local body of believers. Why? So you don't stray from the Lord. And this is not just about you, it's about other people as well, and we, we, we need to be aware of our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be missing in action. This morning, for example, I did ask somebody in the back. I said, hey, is this opening, season, opening day here? I just asking some guys. And then when I asked him, I said, man, if pastor knows that, maybe we should have gone. We should have taken advantage of that. He knows it's opening season. But we need to be aware that, that if there's someone in our body who may have slipped away from the fellowship into the barren wasteland of compromise and unbelief, it happens all the time. You may have even been there at one point in your life. And it's our responsibility to go after them and rescue them from that lonely, empty way of life and encourage them to get plugged back into church so that their relationship with Christ can be restored and their life will be blessed. That's exactly what the other disciples did for Thomas. They sought to rescue him from the barrenness of unbelief. Listen, if you notice that someone isn't around as often or... You haven't seen them for a while, and listen, don't come to me and say, hey, where's so-and-so? If you see it, if you recognize it, call them, email them, stop by their house, stop by their place of work. It's likely that I've noticed, but it may be that I haven't noticed, and that's where the whole body of Christ comes together. It's not just my responsibility to, to keep track of all the, we got to keep track of each other. That's part of letting, uh, considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's, it's all of our responsibility. And so again, we could be used by God like, like he used the, the ten disciples to go and get Thomas. There may be a Thomas who's, who's not here this morning, who, who should be sitting in one of these empty chairs. And you know who that person is. Well, this week, go out after him. And encourage them to come back and sit next to you next Sunday. That's the barrenness of unbelief. Let's look now at the blessedness of belief. The blessedness of belief, verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Good, they got him back. He's sitting there. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. Again, he repeats the fact that Jesus is walking through walls here. The doors were locked. He didn't need a door to get in. And he stood in their midst and said, same thing, peace be with you. So one week later here, the disciples had gathered together again in the upper room. This time there were 11. Okay? Now we got Thomas back. Judas is already dead, right? And by God's grace, the other 10 had gotten through to Thomas, and he was back enjoying their fellowship. And that's when Jesus did a repeat appearance here. This was an encore, if you will, okay? And this was for an audience of one. This was all for Thomas. The other 10 guys already seen this. They didn't need to see it again. This was just a a replay, if you will, for Thomas. And he directed his words towards Thomas, and he gave him the opportunity to do exactly what he had said it would take for him to believe that Jesus had really come back from the grave. Notice verse 27, he says to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And then notice how Thomas responds here. Thomas answered and said to him, "Hey, thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, let me let me let me feel that. Let me put my finger there. Let me let me There's no record that he did any of that stuff. That he just instantly cried out, my Lord and my God. Why was that? I think the impression here that I get from this text is that being in Christ's presence alone was enough to do away with all Thomas' doubts. And it may have been Jesus' display of divine omniscience And knowing exactly what Thomas had demanded, I mean, word for word, he repeats what Thomas had said it would take for him to believe. And Jesus says the same exact thing to him to overcome his skepticism regarding the resurrection. But whatever it was that that struck Thomas, he he exclaimed here, my Lord and my God. And as one commentator said, this is the highest profession of belief in Jesus recorded in the pages of any of the Gospels. Thomas is the only disciple who ever called Jesus God. And so again, notice the context here of the Gospel of John. I believe this profound confession is the climax of, of John's gospel. John wrote his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ for the specific purpose of proving that Jesus is who? God. He began in chapter 1. I mean right out of the gate, he starts making this claim in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In other words, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. That's how he started it. And now John ended where he started by showing how Thomas personally embraced the truth of Christ's deity that he introduced back in chapter 1. And so here in the second to the last chapter of, of this gospel, Thomas's confession serves as, a, as really a, a John's closing argument. It's kind of like bookends, chapter 1 and chapter 20. And throughout this gospel, as we've seen, John traced the growing unbelief of the religious leaders which climaxed at the crucifixion, at the same time, he traced the growing belief of his followers, which climaxed at the resurrection. And now John used Thomas's declaration to show how the faith of Christ's followers had come to fruition and how they realized that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, He's God. And that realization, that conviction, transformed their lives. They were never, the disciples were never, ever the same after the resurrection. And I mentioned this the last couple weeks. In my opinion, the greatest proof, or at least one of the greatest proofs, of the resurrection of Jesus is the radical transformation that took place in the lives of these disciples. And empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they faithfully, they fearlessly took the gospel to the ends of the earth. I found this interesting that according to tradition, Thomas carried the gospel all the way to India. And that was one of the first things I learned when I started traveling to India on mission trips, that they revere Thomas, of all the apostles. It's not Peter, not Paul, it's not John, it's Thomas. I'm like, Thomas? You guys like, like doubting Thomas? He's like your hero? Well, I found out is because he was the one who came to, 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 to India and shared the gospel. In fact, there are churches in South India whose roots go back to the beginning of the church age and are believed to have been founded by Thomas himself. There's a, there's a small hill near the airport in Madras where they say that Thomas is, is buried. His body is actually buried there. Tradition says that he was martyred for his faith by being run through with a spear, which I think you would agree is an apt or a fitting way to be martyred for one whose faith came to fruition, if you will, when he saw the spear mark in his master's side. That's how he went to be with the Lord. Notice how Jesus responded to this tremendous statement of Thomas. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see And yet believed. And so here's Jesus making a promise to bless all those who would believe in him without having the benefit of seeing him. In other words, Thomas, you've had the benefit of seeing me, and you believe. That's great. Good job, man. Good hustle. But blessed are those who will believe in me, and they're not going to see me. They're not going to have that benefit. We know that he was about to ascend back to heaven and with a few exceptions, Paul being one of them on the Damascus Road, no one would ever see Jesus again until he returns. In other words, even though we have never had the privilege of seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus, I'm always scared to ask this, but has anybody ever seen Jesus, like really seen Jesus? Please don't raise your hand. Okay, that would, I wouldn't know what to do. Or I wouldn't know what to say, right? <laughs> But none of us can say, Yeah, I've seen you last week or last year. No, none of us have seen Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, like Thomas did. And yet we are more blessed than Thomas because we believe even though we haven't seen him. Why? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, and though you've not seen him, you love him. What a beautiful description of a Christian. That, that's all of us. None of us have seen Jesus, but we love him. Nevertheless, and he says, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Listen, our faith has not come from seeing Christ but hearing the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And so there's a special blessing for those of us who've come to faith in Christ by simply taking God at his word. In fact, even though we've never seen Jesus with our own eyes like Thomas and the other disciples did, our faith is based on an even greater foundation. It's based on this right here. And that's even better than an eyewitness sighting, if you will, of Jesus Christ. Peter said that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He, he talked about the surest evidence that we have for placing our faith in Jesus is what the Bible says, that he says, hey, listen, we were up on the Mount of Transfiguration and we, we, we saw and we heard we saw his word. We heard the voice of God from heaven. And even though we had that amazing experience that, that most people would just uh, you know, die to, to get, right? Everyone would be jealous. Oh, I wish I, was, I wish I was you guys. I wish I got to be up there to see that. He says, guess what? You have a more sure word. You have something even more convincing, and that's this thing right here. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that uh, in that story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16... When the rich man went to hell and he didn't want his brothers to go there with him, he said to Abraham, hey, send Lazarus back. Surely if they see a man who was raised from the dead, they'll believe. They'll repent of their sin and they won't end up where I'm at. And what did, what did Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. It's not about seeing. It's about what? Hearing. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament scriptures, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And by the way, did someone rise from the dead? Yeah, Jesus. Jesus came back from the dead. And did everybody go, oh, wow, amazing, we're going to believe? No. See, there's a lot of people who claim that they would believe in Jesus if he would just appear to them. If Jesus would just come and appear to me, I'd believe in him. If I I just saw some miracle, some vision, or have some experience with Jesus, I would believe in him. Listen, you might be someone like that who's still not convinced of the claims of Christ. You're still holding out for more evidence. You're, You're waiting for more information before you make a decision whether or not to commit your life to Christ. Listen, you're never going to find anything more compelling or more convicting than this thing right here. In fact, Jesus himself pointed us to the Bible to persuade us to believe in him. You remember after he rose from the dead, he met up with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who were slow to believe that he had truly risen from the dead and he could have just walked in and goes, surprise, it's me! and gave them this really cool experience. But what did he do instead? He said, hey, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let me walk you through the scriptures and show you why you should believe that I rose from the dead. It wasn't even that you saw me, it's because the scriptures said. In other words, hey, it's all right here. Guys, it's, it's right here. And so consequently, it wasn't the resurrection that convinced them of the truth of the Bible, it was the Bible that convinced them of the truth of the resurrection. Big, big difference, right? Well, if you can prove to me the resurrection, then I'll believe the Bible. No, the Bible convinces us of the truth of the resurrection, and that's the way it should be. God is most honored when we believe Simply because he said to without ever demanding any additional evidence or proof beyond the pages of scripture. And when we do that, we'll be blessed. That's what he said. Now, just pulling this together again, just the context here, let's not miss this. In the last two verses here of this chapter, John, again, we've read this many times before, states the exact reason why he wrote this gospel. He said, therefore, Right in light of okay, when you hear see, you therefore, what is it? Therefore, he just got done telling this story of Thomas, uh, my Lord and my God. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these these have been written so that you may what believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So John's conceding, hey, listen this is by no means an exhaustive account of, of the life of Christ. In fact, he's going to say in the next chapter that uh, all the books in the world could never contain everything that you could write about Jesus. He says, but what I did include here provides ample proof for any sinner to place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and have their life completely transformed. And again, I think this, these two verses are... are are, are a fitting conclusion to the story of a a stubborn skeptic whose life was forever changed by by a personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He, He finally ends here by saying, hey, let me give you an example of a guy who didn't believe at first. He didn't believe at first. But then he came to understand that Jesus is God. And his life was forever changed. Listen, you may, you, you may have been coming to this church your entire life. You may have just started coming to this church. You may have been through this entire study of the gospel of John, and we're here now to the main point. And you may have remained a skeptic up until this point. You walked in here this morning a skeptic of the gospel, a skeptic of all of this stuff that we talk about, all the stuff we do here at, at, at Lakeside Bible Church. And as a result, you have been experiencing the barrenness of unbelief. And you know what I'm talking about. Your life stinks. (laughs) You may look good on the outside. You might have everything that everyone else wishes they had. And and you might look good on the surface, but you know what's going on in your heart. And you know the loneliness and and, and the lostness that you feel. And I would just encourage you this morning, listen, you can leave here a believer. A believer. You walked in a skeptic. You could leave here a believer. You say, what do I do? Well, number one, you admit the fact that you're a sinner who deserves to die and go to hell and be willing to turn away from your life of sin. That's A. B, you need to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And that what he did on the cross for you is the only way that you can be forgiven for your sin. There's nothing that you can do to get right with God. God had to do it all through his son. And so you accept that by faith. And then finally, you confess Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life and you commit the rest of your life from this day forward to follow and obey him as your Lord and as your master. Being a Christian is as easy as A-B-C. Admit, believe, and commit. I want you all to bow your heads right now. And this is something that I rarely, rarely do. And you know that. But I want you just to bow your head and close your eyes. I don't want anybody looking around. And this is just something that God impressed on my heart as we get to the climax here of the Gospel of John. That I want to make sure that no one leaves here this morning without a chance to place their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And I don't know who's out here. I know a lot of you are saved already. You already have placed your faith in Christ. You're following Christ faithfully. But there may be one, just one or more, who you know you're not truly saved. And if you were to die today, you don't have the confidence that you'd go to heaven. In fact, some of you sitting here know you'd go straight to hell. And so I'm just gonna Pray this prayer. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I want you just, if, if that's you, if, if, if you're not a Christian, and maybe you've been a skeptic, or maybe you've been faking it, or maybe you've just never come to this fork in the road, this U-turn, even as Billy talked about with the students this last week, where you've truly turned around, did, did a 180, and, and walked away from the world and walked towards Christ. I want to give you a chance just to pray a prayer to God confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And just pray this in the quietness of your own heart. Don't pray this out loud, just if this is you, I want you to pray this in your your mind, your heart. God, I'm a sinner who deserves to be punished for my sin. But I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. And I repent of my sin and I place my trust in his death and resurrection as the way you provided for me to be forgiven. And to spend eternity with you in heaven. And today, I commit the rest of my life to follow and obey Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And I will just say, based on this text this morning, that if you prayed that prayer and that was a genuine prayer, cry of your heart this morning then I can declare to you that your sins have been forgiven because you've believed the gospel and you've repented and you've turned in faith to Jesus Christ as the only way that you can be saved. If you prayed that prayer this morning I want to talk to you afterwards and I'm not going to make you raise your hand or walk down the aisle or sign some card. But I sure would love to, to talk with you afterwards. I know your mom and dad would love to talk to you afterwards. Maybe your small group leader, your grow group leader. Find someone who you know cares for your soul and has been praying for your salvation. Go to them and seek them out and tell them that you prayed that prayer this morning and that you didn't want to leave the study of the Gospel of John having missed out on the opportunity to truly repent and to truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the power of your word and Lord, we just trust you that you're at work in this place and that uh, I've just seen you, you work through your word and your spirit time and time again when we just throw it out there. We just preach the word and, and trust you to, to save and sanctify individuals. And so, I pray that you're accomplishing that work even now granting genuine repentance and genuine faith in Christ. Lord, I pray if there are still some who are who are not sure and 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 they're still they're still holding out, Lord, that you would convict their heart of the truth of your word. And that you would um, cause them not to be able to rest or sleep even until they get right with you. I pray that we'd all be sensitive to uh, those around us and where they're at spiritually and that maybe you would use uh, some of us today even to be an encouragement, uh, to be even, even just to confirm the gospel in someone's life today or come alongside them and begin to disciple them in their newfound faith in Christ. We just ask that you would be honored and glorified by saving souls, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.